Welcome to Night of the Living Geeks. If you geek out over it, we've got a podcast for it. Hello everyone, and welcome to the pilot episode of the Soundtracks on the Sticks podcast. This is Chris. With me today is my good friend, a longtime friend, Jordan. And we had this weird idea in our heads at some point or another where we decided, hey, we hear a lot of video game podcasts out there in the world, but soundtrack-related podcasts when it comes to video games... Not as many, so we decided to give this a shot. So, Jordan, how's it going today, man? It is going fantastic. As a matter of fact, I'm actually making my way downtown. See, that's a reference to a song that everybody knows. <laughs> you know, I'm actually making my way to uh, the local Walmart to get some goodies and kind of set up for the second half of the Super Bowl because the first half nobody's too into. And it's interesting, though, I, that I point that out driving because and this is a true fact of my life. The first time I drove a car unsupervised by myself, the very first song I played was the battle theme from Final Fantasy VIII. And Don't be afraid. And yeah. I'm not even joking. That is the first song that I blasted out loud when I was able to drive on my own after getting my learner's permit. Yeah, and it's one of those circumstances where initially when we were trying to decide on which game to cover for the initial pilot episode a couple of months ago when the idea surfaced, we had a couple of choices on it, but it was at the time in which Final Fantasy VIII had its remaster finally released after so many years where you just really had the original PS1 version and then a couple of PC mods here and there. But it finally got done. Uh... Got a nice little graphics uh, reboot on the side of defense. Uh, they did some stuff with the soundtrack, not too much. Uh, I think the main culprits would be, I think, around disc three with the whole Ragnarok scene with the Eyes on Me vocals, I think, getting a little bit messed up due to the sourcing code, but the original song being there at the ending. But we can get into that a little bit further down the episode so again uh, Final Fantasy 8 is our first choice and what we're going to be covering here uh, now when it comes to Final Fantasy 8 it's an in- it's an interesting point in the series because a lot of people at that time uh, 
you know, Final Fantasy VII being the first major hit for the Final Fantasy series in North America. And eight came in with a lot of hype in the process because you were starting to have all the marketing campaigns towards it. It was not just a Japan-only gimmick at this point, but, you know, North America had expectations for it as well. And, you know, anticipation built. And the game sold like hotcakes once it did come out. And that soundtrack itself for uh, one Nobuo Uematsu, who's been pretty much the mastermind around the entirety of the Final Fantasy series. Uh, I believe this was his 23rd entry of any sort of work that he's done for Square at that point. So... He had definitely like put in a lot of work, if you will, into all the games that the company had uh, developed there. And when it comes to soundtracks, 8, much like the game itself, it almost seems to have a bit of a split opinion, if you will, where some people regard it as kind of this overall great masterpiece from start to finish, and others think it's about as inconsistent, at, inconsistent as its junction system within the gameplay of the game. So, I will say that tonally, the soundtrack goes in a lot of unique places for Final Fantasy. However, there's some songs that I feel would have been better served in maybe Final Fantasy IX. I feel like there was a lot of experimentation going on because early in the soundtrack, it's you know the opening theme. Everybody thinks it's a and forgive my pronunciation, I always say Liberty Fatale. Um, there's a, actually a song that plays before that when the game is starting very military. Everybody knows that, uh, you know, is the opening Final Fantasy VIII. And then the battle theme is also very much consistent with that. And then the boss theme is almost more fantasy-based. It's kind of, Force Your Way is a very, very, like, fantasy-based track, and it's kind of like, okay, we have kind of military-sounding, a lot of drums, stuff like that, and then we go into a song that I would expect to hear, uh, and Fantasy Star, for the bonus battle theme. And this is, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but that alone, like, just that, the two most important songs in any JRPG the normal battle theme. Why? Because you'll hear it more than any other song. Mm -hmm. And the boss battle theme, where if it does not connect with you, if it doesn't give you that feeling of like, this is where we buckle down, it doesn't work. And those two songs in Final Fantasy VIII cannot be further apart as so far as the tone, consistency, and things like that. It's, uh, again, not to ramble, but if you look at Sevens, uh, the way the battle theme and the boss theme was composed. Very totally similar. Same with 6, 5, 4, 8. We started experimenting. I feel like uh, we really started to experiment with kind of maybe even music. Would you agree that doesn't fit the theme of the game? Yeah. But fits the overall series, if, mm -hmm. if that's making sense. Yeah, I get where you're coming from with that. And some interesting points to that as well is that this was around the first time where Uematsu decided to not use um, a lot of different sources to find like the MIDI instruments like he had done in the previous series. And with, I guess, the hardware capacity with, with the PS1 having been a little more explored at that point too, uh, I believe what he ended up using from what I saw in different notes of interviews he did and stuff like that. It was a Roland SC88 synthesizer is what he used for the entirety of the score. So he was writing all these notes not just on kind of the, you know, 
really character specific songs like he had done in the past but sort of working more off of like character designs screenplays and kind of creating a general picture of like the songs and the moods uh trying to sort of use imagery rather than emotions to kind of express certain uh characters which you could tell given that Final Fantasy didn't have really any character specific themes something that Uematsu found ineffective I think from previous points in the series Really, the biggest personal theme that you can point out in the series, in the entirety of 8, would be um, what they did with Squall and Renoa throughout the entirety of the game, where you had certain set pieces all based around the uh, big theme of the song, which we'll get into a little bit later, which was Eyes on Me. Um, which was, honestly, for Jordan and I, probably one of the two biggest reasons we wanted to do this on 8 once we settled on an actual choice for it. Um it should be said, though, uh, even though people do go back and forth in arguing the soundtrack as well, uh, given that, as Jordan mentioned, a lot of experimentation with the series, um, if you take uh, what the Black Mages have done, which have been a pretty big cover band for Final Fantasy songs in general as well, when Matsu's played with them and such, Final Fantasy VIII, I believe, is the uh, one game in which they covered the most themes out of compared to any other, which says something right there in terms of the amount of choices that you had. Absolutely. When you say the Black Mages, of course, I think it is uh, should be said that Uematsu is actually in the band. It mm-hmm. is a cover band, but the creator of these, this music is in the band, which is something you don't see very often. Uh, they're doing these remixes for these songs, they're releasing them, and, you know, I will say that while you kind of look at it from the standpoint of kind of the history, I want to go right quick, just in a very different, not in a different direction, but you, something you said actually just inspired me. Hmm. I've long thought of video game music to be the pop music of classical music. Does that make sense? And that film scores and video game music especially when we were growing up around the time Final Fantasy VIII came out in 1999, you, if you were listening to a video game soundtrack, it was strange. It was odd. It was awkward. Why would you listen to that? And then within a year or two, you know, Eyes on Me changed everything. Eyes on Me is actually the first song to win an award from a video game. Fei Wong's performing it. Next thing you know, we're having Final Fantasy concerts here in the States. Mm-hmm. We're having film score soundtracks here in the States. And I bring that up for a reason. And that reason is Final Fantasy VIII, in a great many ways, is the reason that we kind of have the video game music culture that we have now. It was, this soundtrack was the first one to really kind of break the mold and have a song performed at your, you know, normal music awards over in Japan. Mm-hmm. And that song being Eyes on Me. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing to consider, too, is that even going prior to 8, you definitely saw a lot of praise for different scores in different music genres when you're looking at the JRPGs of the world. Obviously, when you talk Final Fantasy VII, you can't go through a conversation about that soundtrack without mentioning Winged Angel, for example. But yeah, as you mentioned, that big of an impact culturally with Eyes on Me grabbing the award that it did back in 99, uh, just sort of opening the gates, if you will, that, 
hey, this is a genre of music that not only can be explored within the realm of video games, but that you can also take on tour and use that as a revenue stream as well for your game and the uh, companies and stuff like that too. So, Video games, I've always kind of said, are a medium that encompasses everything. And you and I were born in the same year, 1987, which makes us both 32 years old today, the day of recording. So, quick backstory, actually. Uh, your host, Chris, actually was not born uh, an American. Uh, he was born in Brazil. Uh, I was born in the United States. So, we had, obviously, different cultural upbringings and whatnot. However, what I find very interesting is that when we first got to know each other, when it came to Final Fantasy VIII, we kind of had the same experience at around the same time, mm-hmm. which is something that does not, nor you know, for if there's going to be you know younger viewers or whatnot, the world is very connected now. However, before, depending on where you were born, your access to media, your access to entertainment was very, very, very different, especially in, you know, South America. However, uh, here in the States, 9999 was a huge lady, that's the day Final Fantasy VIII came out, and I distinctly remember them making a big deal about Eyes on Me even then, and you had said that even in Brazil, like, there was kind of, uh, I won't say a culture, Mm -hmm. but it was like, oh, it was more than a song from a video game. You know, yeah, and that's a, such a huge thing because it's already coming from Japan, uh, and kind of impacting North America in that way. And obviously, I will say that a lot of people know that they teach video game music in Japan and like music courses. Love theme Final Fantasy IV, for example, uh, is taught as as if it's you know a, just a piece of music to be studied, like we teach Beethoven here. So the culture over there has always kind of favored. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that, but over here in North America, and especially in South America, the fact that this soundtrack was able to kind of make us all take notice, again, I just find that very interesting, because we kind of have the same experience with that, despite being, you know, in North and South America, and that's one of the few things that we can share that experience in, just to give people kind of uh, a world view at the time, 20 years ago, of how major this game soundtrack was Mm -hmm. definitely so and again video game culture in general i think in a worldwide scale it really depends on where you were based off uh and kind of working with whatever they released at the time i know with south america during the 90s especially within brazil where i was at specifically more often than not consoles weren't cheap and the games that came with it were not cheap either just due to tariffs and uh, different taxes that came through. So a lot of the stuff that we got there more often than not is we'd basically grab the console itself or whatever the cost was, more than likely just mod it so that way you could play just about any sort of CDs, including the uh, somewhat infamous like pirated ones at the time, and then just acquire our games accordingly that way. So it, it felt very similar to kind of how people view, you know, your emulators and ROMs of the world these days. Where there will. is a will, there is a way. Pretty much. Uh, but again, with Final Fantasy VIII, I think the experience from a gameplay perspective is something that can be discussed in a different time in that there are many podcasts who've already gone and beaten this horse to death accordingly but from a soundtrack perspective I think both Jordan and I stand on the similar boat where 
We know the iconic songs and we're big fans of them, but we also know from an overall scale this was definitely the more experimental route that would then be further expanded into Final Fantasy IX, which we can probably cover at a later episode sometime down the road if this thing takes off. But I did want to get, get us back on track just with some of the key songs that were part of this Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack. And I mean, uh, as mentioned, we got to start in a way with Liberi Fatale, which was that opening FNV, which showed the uh, PlayStation full-fledgedly flexing in terms of its uh, graphics department at the time with the way that they put that all together and just what a song to go with that as well uh, to kind of I... open the universe itself to us. Like, that was wow. When you, to this day, I can hear like when the song starts and you hear the waves crash you know, against the sand as the song begins... I found it interesting, actually, that as the FMV starts, you see Squaresoft Presents. This was one of the first games that really had that cinematic feel to begin. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Because normally, with, you know, most video games start, it would say the Squaresoft, and it would show the company logo, and you would kind of push start. But when you saw Final Fantasy VIII, it's like, whoa, it almost felt like you were getting dare I say, a trailer-like vibe from that opening movie, and Liberty Fatale is such a powerful song. You had said earlier that Final Fantasy VIII doesn't exactly do character themes. What I found very interesting is that that's correct. However, the Fethos, Lucey, you know, Wikos Vinose mm -hmm. that starts Liberty Fatale, yeah. kind of is the recurring theme throughout the game. So while the characters themselves don't have individual themes that will occur, the opening, the first thing you hear in Liberty Fatale is kind of the consistent theme throughout the entirety of Final Fantasy VIII. I just thought that was really cool. You know what I mean? Because you have that imagery when you start with Liberty Fatale and you hear that, and throughout the game, it just repeats and repeats and repeats. So... That opening movie, I think the reason why it is so impressive is due to, as pretty as it is, it's really the song. The song brings it all together. You will always think about it throughout the game because of the recurring, not character theme, but Liberty Fatality recurring. And no other Final Fantasy does that. Yeah. Like, it's sincerity. Even Xanarchant mm -hmm. doesn't do it. Yeah. as much as it is Because it's definitely something that you see in a couple of the other themes later on in the game as well, where you kind of have sort of a semi-orchestral rendition of a passage of it in the landing, which is the eighth track of the first uh, of the four discs, and which that soundtrack released on. Yeah, it's a four-hour-long soundtrack for those who are curious, who may not exactly, like, experienced it. And then... Along with that, I mean, you definitely get the main melody of that as well, too. A little bit of it in the stage is set later on in the soundtrack. Plus, Fetus Lusik, Wekos Vinosik. Uh, if I botched that spelling, I apologize in advance. But another interesting thing for me in particular, too, is that given the release of Final Fantasy VIII in 1999 on February 11th, um, in that same year, though, we did, from a cultural standpoint, also have another big thing release that year, and Jordan, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it, with it being Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and Duel of the Fates Sweet. being kind of that defining track 
in a similar vein in terms of the way those particular songs went as well, sort of setting up your big uh, kind of epic encounter, plus it being a motif for almost the rest of the series for the rest of that particular uh, episode or, you know, game in this case as well. So just an Game interesting little note there, yeah. Game of Fates was played on TRL. For those of that know, it was a Total Request Live, Total Request, huge show in the late 90s. It was pretty much like a top 10 call-in. Precursor to pretty much all the voting and whatnot uh, that would come in the early 2000s. And I, it's funny you mentioned Total Fates because I remember being almost 12 years old and like, whoa, like, they have a full orchestra here, and they're playing this song on MTV. Mm-hmm. That is sort of the that it's very very interesting to bring that up because that is very important. And I again, that's kind of the thing with video game music, the culture. I can't stress enough, like the culture shifting if you will, during that time where people would recreationally listen to music like this. And once again, I distinctly remember the Final Fantasy VIII commercials. People would ask, what was that song? What was that song? That is something that did not happen for, can you name a video game? around that time where people would watch a commercial and want to search for the song, which was the brief Fatality. Yeah. It's very interesting because it's a situation where anytime that you had heavy promotion, uh, for, you know, games, movies at the time with movies, it would make sense to try and seek out whatever that sound was just because movie scores were such an important part of the motion picture itself it definitely you know has its own set of awards within the academy awards golden gloves uh what you will but for video games even though sound has been such an important part of them since the very beginning once you started having that ability to put that into effect um again yeah it's a situation where right around that time around the turn of the uh century itself is when you really started to see much more emphasis being put into it. And uh, Final Fantasy VIII being one of the key games in general that brought that to the forefront uh, also kind of just continues to help remind us of its importance as well. I'm aware this is definitely a pilot episode if it seems as though we're kind of uh, setting, setting the table, if you will, before going in. However, and once again, it's hard to believe that 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, a lot of this was completely new. And something that was happening 20 years ago in 99 was a little thing called Napster, a little thing called Kazaa, Bear Share, peer-to-peer file sharing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm aware that it is not exactly legal. However, what was very interesting to me was on those P2P programs and file shares, you would see a ton of video game soundtracks, specifically the Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack, because in North America, video game soundtracks were not released. No. Mm-mm. There was no way to access this. So what I, I can distinctly remember, sometimes I would go, uh, when I'd be studying or whatnot, I would stand on the world map and let Blue Fields play. Because 
like, you know, Final Fantasy VII's main theme was the world map theme. Yeah. Uh, same with Final Fantasy VI. Final Fantasy games, like, the main theme was the world map theme. Final Fantasy VIII was the first one where the world map theme wasn't the game's main, yes. main theme. Mm-hmm. They had its own distinctive world map theme that just stayed as a constant there. And, again, it's one of those things where uh, William Monson, again, doing something a little bit different compared to uh, the usual from previous editions. So... There was that to consider there. Um, you definitely had some repeats, though, in terms of things like Find Your Way was something that you normally heard in a lot of the different dungeons. You had the seed theme, which was specifically for any mission briefings or related scenes involving the school in any way, shape, or form. Um, but uh, along with that, the interesting part for me is that this was one of those games where you got a main battle theme, which was Don't Be Afraid. But then you also had an alternate battle theme for a certain point in the game, which was the man with the machine gun. So kind of emphasizing Squall and Laguna's uh, own like battle themes to an extent is very different from one another, even though certain motifs kind of playing up here and there for it. Man with the machine gun, and I can actually tie this in. When I tell you that you would type in Final Fantasy VIII to say uh, a Napster search, because, and I don't know if this was the case for you in South America, but in North America, I vividly remember we had just been able to use a MP3 CD, mm-hmm. and every the first result, every time I try to like, oh, I'm going to put some Final Fantasy music into this, you know, mixtape or mix CD, Man with the Machine Gun was the most shared song of the soundtrack on those channels. Which, and once again, it wasn't legal. However, it goes to show its popularity and that people were really taking notice of this track. It's so, so different. When we started, I had kind of said how Don't Be Afraid and Force Your Way sound like the normal battle theme and a boss battle theme from two different games with Don't Be Afraid. You would say, if I said this is a, a game about military students, don't be afraid with, uh, you know, fit, force your way. If I said uh, it's Fantasy Star, you'd go, okay, that works. Maybe not military. Man with the machine gun, though, is just completely unique. I have, like, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, immediately. You know how video game music, it takes a while for you to kind of notice it, start humming it and whatnot, because... Yeah of all the other inputs you're doing and whatnot, it can fade to the background. Man with this machine gun, 12 years old, I immediately was like, wow, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Very, very eye-catching again. Uh, and when we're talking about the Black Mages, again, just to refer back to them because they are such an important part of what helped kind of bring a lot of these older Final Fantasy songs into the forelight, into this sort of current era that we're in as well. This was one of the first ones that they did. It was Men with a Machine Gun as a cover. So there's definitely that to consider as well. It was part of their, I believe it was one of the first ones that they did, but they eventually included it on on their second album, I want to say. Uh, I think it was The Skies Above. but The Skies Above, yes. Uh, That's where it was, as a matter of fact. And, you know, speaking of, like, the unique themes for Final Fantasy VIII and what it did, there's another song uh, that Final Fantasy VIII uses. Now, Final Fantasy VII did this as well, but I feel like in Final Fantasy VIII, it was really 
uh, the trope codifier, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song Chemonition, where you would fight the sorceress. Yeah. Um, Adea, you know, would have her own battle theme, which would be Premonition. And I know, obviously in 7, you know, when you would fight Genova, Genova would always play. But what I found really interesting about the song Premonition is that in the final boss battle against Ultimisha, yes, Ultimisha is how it's pronounced. Thank you, Desidia. Mm-hmm. Premonition begins the fight. Never before in Final Fantasy has a uh, the recurring boss song, if you will, of the special boss song that occurs, kicked off the final battle. That is completely unique to Final Fantasy VIII, and it, to my knowledge, has not happened since. Yeah, it's one of those situations where Umatsu really looked at a lot of sort of like his best work in this soundtrack and just sort of put everything together into this composition for premonition itself and it definitely sets off like a big mark especially as you mentioned going into uh you know a theme against the final boss uh, as mentioned as well um i guess a couple ones that we should mention as well in passing just given that they had you know sort of an electric sort of sensation to them when they played them uh, Legendary Beast and Maybe I'm a Lion as mm. well, which happens to be our friend, Cha- one of our friends, uh, Jordan Chambers' uh, personal favorites as well, from what I can recall. Uh, and along with that as well, another one that I want to mention that should be pointed out before we get into kind of the big main event song that we've mentioned in passing already, but that we're definitely going to be covering here. Uh, Fitos Lusik Wekos Vinosik. Uh, playing initially during, uh, I think it was Ultimatius uh, Parade in Delling City in the uh, game itself. Yes. But then... Um, and it was when the actual song, and once again, that's, you know, as we said earlier, that song is kind of spliced, spliced in, excuse me, spliced in everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, from Wolverine Fatali game. But lo and behold, it actually is its own song, as you were saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. The other big thing to point out from a, uh, you know, modern culture standpoint, uh, because if you remember about five years after this game came out in the uh, 2004 Summer Olympics, there was a synchronized swimming duo uh, from the American side that actually ended up winning a bronze medal using a medley of Fitos Lusek, Michael Vinosek, and Liberi Fatali, which was Alison Bartosek and Anna Kozlova, I believe is who they were. So, yes, indeed. And once again, I you know, I consistently will mention the shifting culture. Keep in mind, this game released in 1999, and this was when video game music was still not really listened to, and the only way to really acquire it in North America was through illegal means, unless you wanted to tape record, you know, your video game. Here we are, 2004, just five years later, and. In the Olympics, in the Olympics, there is a routine to video game music from Final Fantasy VIII. If that isn't the confident, like the hard stamp that this soundtrack did, uh, you know, kind of brought video game music culture into the I won't say mainstream consciousness, mm-hmm. but for you know, it made it. It wasn't strange anymore. You didn't have to. I listen to video game music uh, in my bed with the covers up, with the headphones in, so nobody thinks I'm weird. No, it was like something that 
people who played the game would talk about, and it would become a topic of conversation, like, how awesome was that this song? Rarely would that come up in video game conversation. And then, as I said, boom, five years, just five years after release, people are performing it in the Summer Olympics. Yeah. That's incredible. Again, it's one of those things where, soundtracks-wise, unless you were either getting it from Japan itself or maybe finding, like, if you are in a city that has, like, its own sort of, like, Japanese market neighborhood area where you could procure something like that at probably a much more expensive price than what it usually would be. Yeah, the sort of downloading through illegal methods was sort of the way things function in the wild, wild west that was the early 2000s there, but... There wasn't exactly PlayAsia.com in 1999. Yeah, exactly. exactly. There was that to consider as well, too. Uh, But I know we've been sort of jumping all over the soundtrack, but I did want to go back also into, uh, as mentioned a little bit earlier as well, uh, there was also Waltz for the Moon as well, which is a fairly important piece because we were talking about Wumatsu doing themes specifically around moments rather than characters themselves with the exception of Squall and Renoa having sort of this consistent theme that just got played in certain different ways throughout the entirety of the game and Waltz for the Moon was definitely one of them with that sort of iconic dance graduation dance scene that you know at at the time like uh, from a graphical standpoint the uh, game itself the facial scans weren't at their prime. This was the PS1 era, <laughs> after all. But the actual FNVs, they were nailing them right, left, and center. And that uh, entire dance sequence with Squall and Renoa with this playing was something else at the time. I remember there was... it would uh, That was the main thing that would play in the commercial. Mm-hmm. Would be that scene. And the song would play, and I'm reading it later when I got to it in the game. And it's very hard to, through audio, and even through, we have this uh, culture of reactions now. Everybody likes to record their live reactions. Whether they're actually live or not is up for debate, not for us. However, I can tell you, I visibly reacted, my mother at the time, keep in mind I'm 12 years old, was like what just made you react like that? And it was getting to that scene and I was humming the song. Mm-hmm. Which is not something that would happen for a video game, but I had seen the scene so many times in the commercial and getting to that, it just felt like it felt like I had made it. And all these emotions had not come to me and many other people in a video game through music until I keep mind, I'm speaking mostly for people of around our age. I'm sure you know, like people were obviously 25, 30, 35. The kind of could notice these things and be more in tune. But dare I say that our generation, we really attached to video game music growing up, you know, and that was one of the things I'd hear in the commercial. Like I said, I played the game, be blown away. Like I made it. Here's the song. I'm hearing the song of the game. I got somewhere. I got to that moment. Mm-hmm. And music is one of the only things that can convey that feeling. It's so hard to put words into. It's just beautiful. It yeah. really is. Uh, fantastic stuff all around. And uh, another one that I think should be mentioned as well, because I think it does lead into our main event in question, uh, does happen to be Julia, which is your piano, you know, this awesome rendition of 
eyes on me, which uh, in the game itself, like when considering that this was around the time in which the whole relationship between Laguna and Julia was developing and becoming this gradual, like unrequited love story altogether to talk about a song that eventually went towards, you know, putting that together, putting those emotions into song in and of itself and then eventually leading into you know the full rendition which was eyes on me which yeah as we've discussed already it's won its awards it kind of brought things into a limelight but considering the time uh just uh it was something else and to hear a rendition of that in-game fitting within the course of the storyline was unprecedented to a certain extent beyond unprecedented. If there is something beyond unprecedented, this was it. They took the song Eyes on Me and made it interactive for the player in a way that only the medium of video games can do. Because as Laguna, you interact with Julia as she's composing the song. Mm -hmm. The song in-game um, you know, is performed then by Julia and it's dedicated to Laguna. You kind of, it's a song about their relationship. So when you hear the song in game for the first time now, Julia, of course, is a, you know, is a rendition of it, instrumental of it, however you want to put it. The song, um, actually, the melody of it is in a lot of tracks, but the big reveal is in the. I'm going to call an icon. Spaceship scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it's Grow. Not love the... Grow. Yeah, Love Grow specifically would be the track in love question. Grows. That's like the close full instrumental version of it. Now, uh, One Winged Angel was One Winged Angel. It was a huge deal. Uh, never before in a major, well, I guess every video game is major. Has there been lyrics for a final boss theme? You can say all you want about how now. Practically, it's almost a recurring trope that there has to be a Latin chorus for that big epic boss fight. But that's exactly that. It was a big Latin chorus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, TV tropes when basically I, has a whole thing on it these days because of that. So say what when eyes <laughs> when eyes on me started playing in Final Fantasy VIII, in that spaceship scene, you go, "Oh, it's a song in English." Well, you know, in North America, it's a song in English. Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, chain and chorus. No, this is a song, as in a song that can play on the radio, if you will. A song that could be on television. Uh, you know, if this song, you could take Eyes on Me and have it performed by, say, Monica at the time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Who had just released that incredible song yet. And they that would make sense that had not been in the video game well you know i say one one danger because you know a lyrical song in a video game but it's a latin chorus it's chanting this was an actual song you can sing along to it it was in english it was i would say it was a pop song but again it could be mm-hmm. could have been a pop song and that was like whoa i I remember being just blown away, like, whoa, this is this is happening. This is like a movie scene. This is like the big romance song. And despite hearing the lyrics for the first time, 
you kind of could hum along because of the game taking you on that journey with bits and pieces of the song being presented to you as you progress in the game and the story of the song. You know it's Julia singing to Laguna, but it applies to their children mm-hmm. in this situation. Like how cool, for those that don't know, you know, Renella is the daughter of Julia, and Squall is the son of Laguna. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of is, it's that whole situation where one of the coolest things that they did within the game was just sort of the, again, the unrequited love between two people that went their own separate ways, started their own families, and kind of moved on with their own lives, but without forgetting one another to an extent, how that sort of came together through their offspring many years later. Even if circumstances weren't exactly like the most ideal for it all to come together, but it did. Um, And uh, the other big thing too is that this was really the first big vocal theme that every other Final Fantasy game would start doing from this point forward. Uh, It definitely is where that trend started. So between that, the awards that it got at the, uh, what was it again, the Japan uh, Music Awards uh, back in 99? Yes. Because, yeah, again, for a video game song to get that specifically um, is astounding in and of itself. A first time that a song from a video game ever did win that honor. Um, And they sold, I think, at about uh, 400,000 copies at that time, too, which unprecedented numbers for a single in its own right. Absurd. And with something that bears mention. You mentioned how you know it became kind of a thing for Final Fantasy IX with Melodies of Life uh, would follow this as kind of having the big vocal theme in every Final Fantasy. It changed kind of the way JRPGs worked because another series that wasn't Final Fantasy but made by Square Enix, Kingdom Hearts, mm-hmm. the one of the first things they did was get you know Utada Hikaru to perform uh, Sibling Queen. Yeah. Which was one of the most iconic songs, and all of that can be traced back to Eyes on Me, the success of Fei Wong's Eyes on Me in Final Fantasy VIII. Like, never, and again, you stressed it, and I'll stress it again, no other video game had ever done something like that. To take a song that could be a song that could be played on the radio in North America in Japan, in China, in South America, you know what I mean? It's a song that could have been performed by any of the popular artists of that time, and it probably still would have, would have done huge numbers. However, it was a song from a video game, and it still went on to do said huge numbers. And when those awards, the first video game song to win a major music award. Mm-hmm. I will say that I. it sounds like I can't find the words, and it's very hard to kind of articulate even how big of a deal that was. And to be there uh, as it happened, as you and I both, 12-year-olds, and, you know, different parts of the Americas, and have that song play in the game's crucial scene uh, with Squall of Renoa, uh, you know, that romantic scene, in the spaceship, it's like there are the perfect storm. And you couldn't ask 
for something... You can't ask him not to for something more. Because the man's a genius. We all know this. He can make melodies till the end of time. But it's very difficult to apply a song with lyrics that tell the story of the in-game characters and also speak to... Would you would you say it's hyperbole to say a global audience now? With the song's popularity? No, not really, because from... I'll put it this in perspective. For those of you who are listening who do attend the normal, you know, anime video games like convention scene or who had done so at a certain point in time, at any given point in which one of these conventions had some sort of room for karaoke events or a karaoke panel, whatever it is, more than likely you were going to run into somebody who was going to try to sing Eyes on Me outright. Uh, We know people specifically, close friends of ours, who will use that as a go-to song in their particular karaoke lists if it's available. So that just shows that it uh, had its impact and it has stayed even, you know, two decades later at this point, 21 years almost. One of the... One of the shames... One of the great shames of copyright law, and again, you know, we are definitely not lawyers, we're not attorneys. Um, I will say, though, that if you stream Final Fantasy VIII, the soundtrack, which you can do on Apple Music, Spotify, take a moment to think about that. On these popular streaming services that pretty much started to play the radio, you know, on your phones as your technology kind of went in that direction, you can access the soundtracks to video game music. Final Fantasy VIII on that, but Eyes on Me is not there. And that is actually a recurring thing where Eyes on Me became such a big deal. So then came the issues that will come with a, you know, a hit single. Let's call it what it is, a hit single. Yeah. Uh, accessibility became an issue, to say the very least. Uh, are you familiar kind of of what happened with the song, maybe who owns the rights to it? Because you'll notice at a lot of uh, Final Fantasy concerts, uh, the song was performed by different artists, but never by Fei Wong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Fei Wong's recording, I do believe, is something that's like Square, to my knowledge, doesn't own the rights to it. Yeah, I think Despite specific- it being composed by Anubia, no, which is yeah. crazy to me, but that's kind of the way publishing works 20 years ago, and... The record label kind of snatched it up, and it was what it was. Mm-hmm. I, it, I, uh, when it won the uh, Japan Gold Disc, you know what I mean, in 1999, and again, like you said, it fell with 400,000 cop- 400, copies. It became more than a video game song. It became its own hit single. So now it's excluded from the Final Fantasy soundtrack. Yeah. If you were to purchase it, it's not there. Yeah, it is outright its own thing. And I think it was also a lesson that Square ended up learning out of the whole process because eventually when, as we mentioned, when Kingdom Hearts 1 did uh, make its way into Japan and into North America as well with Utada Hikaru agreeing to 
basically do the opening a salvo for it, you know, they made sure that whatever deal they had in place with her, that this would be included in their soundtracks pretty much going forward here. Uh, that and as well as the usually what's been the Planet B remixes, I believe is what it's been that they yeah, used Planet in B. the intros for the both. Planet B remix yeah, uh-huh. is what was used. What I what I will say though, uh, as much as it's you know kind of strife amongst fans of why the song isn't available for streaming, and you know if you didn't get the um, 1999 soundtrack release four disc, as we the four disc release just like the game, it also showed though that video game music could be taken that seriously. Mm-hmm. As as restrictive as a lot of copyright laws are, as much as, you know, we as listeners want music to be as free as it can be, as much as the artists want that, I will say that the eyes, the issues with using Eyes on Me, specifically performed by Fei Wong, it shows, though, that video game music was taken just as serious as any other popular music from a record label standpoint. It wasn't just those songs in your games. No. Executives were fighting for rights over this song. That is... It sucks, but it's also kind of a big deal. Because, once again, it's like, oh, the only reason these people would waste their time on that is if they felt as if it it could be commercially viable. And then in 2002... Just three years later, we're having Final Fantasy concerts. And we're selling the audio recordings from those concerts in Japan. Like, that is huge. And Eyes on Me is kind of the song that got that going. And to this day, you know, Distant Worlds is touring. Have you ever been? I went once. Uh, no, I haven't gotten the chance to do that yet, but it is something that I want to do one day whenever they come either to Denver, Colorado, or somewhere close enough that I can fly into and see it like uh, Los Angeles or Chicago or something like that. But yeah, eventually I would love to go to a distant world just to witness it for myself. You know, and that was something that wasn't being done whatsoever. You know, I mentioned earlier kind of Duel of the Fates and seeing the entire orchestra mm-hmm. on TRL. It was like this bizarre moment of like, wow, it's, you know, baby one more time. What a girl wants. I want it that way. Popular music. And then, is that an orchestra playing music from yeah. the movie, a film score? No well, here we go, right? You know, three years after that in 2002, here we go. People are buying tickets to come and sit and listen to compositions from video games. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa. And not only that, it nowadays, it's almost trendy. That's why I kind of said, it's like, I have seen young people get into classical music because of video game music. It's kind of become, once again, the pop, if you will, of classical music. People are finding, like, and just vibing out to Beethoven. You know what I mean? Because those songs have such similar composition and inspiration in video game music. And how does that all tie into Final Fantasy VIII? Simply because Final Fantasy VIII was the first video game soundtrack that people, executives thought, we could sell this. This is a big deal. We got Faye Wong on the track. We are going to write a song for this game, and it's eligible for awards. 
which is a you can't even make this up. It happened. It's unbelievable. And for the younger listeners, again, this may seem kind of common. Twenty years ago, you video game music in North America. You, the only way you can listen to it was by playing the game. There was no other way. You had to play the game and sit there. Tell me you did this, Chris. Mm-hmm. You would get to a part in the game for a song you'd like, and you just sit there and let it loop. And yeah. it's background music um, for, like, everything. <laughs> I can I can remember the specific song in question that did that to me. I want to say back in 1998, at the time in which I finally had a computer in Brazil that was ours to use, where emulators and ROMs were definitely a thing that I was taking advantage of because not exactly in the best financial states and purposes of my life at that point to be like, Mom, can I get a Super Nintendo or whatever it was at the time? Like, <laughs> I had basically... it definitely cost way more. Like, yeah. it was $200 USD. So, uh, yeah. Comparatively, it would be like, what, like $750 something USD? Along, something along uh, those lines, yeah, in, in Brazilian yeah. reais. Ridiculous. It, it was nuts. But um, uh, a lot of my JRPG experiences were something that I discovered through emulators and ROMs and I want to say really the first time that I remember this particular moment happening for me where something like that just looped back and forth it would have been um uh Tyranno Castle from Chrono Trigger Ooh. which what that, that that is a game that is on my short list for us to eventually discuss for sure we definitely got a couple of those down the line and for those who stuck with us here throughout this entire process as we sort of babbled accordingly, thank you for that. Uh, Final Fantasy VIII is its own experience. It's something that I definitely encourage people. If you have the uh, four hours or a long enough car ride to go and just pop that soundtrack on, give it a whirl. See what you think for yourselves on that. Um, as for us, uh, going forward, uh, we're still looking somewhere to eventually post the soundtrack, uh, this particular podcast on. I'm working on that regard, and hopefully we'll have something there pretty soon. I'll have like our own SoundCloud and stuff, where you're going to be able to listen to that, which you probably are right now. But if you have any questions for us, or even suggestions on regards of which games we should take a look into next, you can either tweet us at Sounds on Sticks on Twitter, or you can just send us an email on soundtracksonthesticks at gmail.com, uh, whichever way is easiest for you to do so. Uh, Absolutely. But outside and of that, for all, yeah. Oh, for all those listening, uh, for whatever it's worth, this is the first time I have spoken in a podcast in my life. I've dropped them before on uh, some. However, I have never, ever recorded an episode of a podcast in which I am uh, one of the hosts. Obviously, Chris, you can tell, has much more experience than me. Uh, so my, perhaps my inflection, my my uh, tendency to kind of set the table, if you will, kind of paint the picture of the culture of the time uh, may have been a little odd. However, this is the first time I've done anything like this, so if there's anything to kind of reel me in, if you will, that's great. But I, I sincerely feel like when it comes to music, especially video game music, uh, context is very important because this medium, you know, you talk about Isaac maybe being 20 years old, the video game music medium is still so new. It is roughly only 20 years old. And it's evolving so quickly. 
because once again, like 1999, we couldn't even get it unless we had to go through illegal channels. 2002, we're having video game music concerts. Three-year turnover rate. If that doesn't speak to the progression of uh, the appreciation of video game music, I don't know what does. Yeah, definitely. I really don't. And, and yeah, you know, sorry, it's ahead, connected. It, no, it's something that I would say even connected us because back in the days of AOL and Messenger, before there was even YouTube, I vividly would remember uh, the mutual friend, actually, that is how Chris and I met, Kevin Crawford. I would often just be like, do you remember this song? Am I the only one that noticed how awesome this video game music is? And he would always reply positively to, to that. So while people in school and whatnot would be like, are you kidding me? You nerd, you loser, you listen to music from games. Mm-hmm. Little did they know, we were actually kind of ahead of the curve. Because it was a bubbling... I will go as far as to say that it is a phenomenon. Because it's selling out arenas now. Video game music is selling out arenas. Yeah, we're talking about our friend Kevin Crawford, for example. Uh, he just recently went into one of the two uh, near concerts that they just ran, I think, between... Yep. I want to say it was Chicago and New York uh, over the last mm-hmm. week and a half or so. And yeah, again, that's that's definitely a thing. Near started to do them. Kingdom Hearts has been doing them for a good two or three years now. Uh, you have Distant Worlds, which has been a thing for far longer. So there I mean, is that, uh, a niche change that, now. for sure. So I wouldn't even call it a niche, you know? And that's why I consistently am trying to kind of set the table and explain. In a short period of time, this went from something that was just word of mouth, at least in North America, to Mm -hmm. something that's selling out arenas just like a pop concert. It's almost mind-boggling. You you talked about Manifest, there are conventions for these things now. Uh, Video game music composers are treated and, dare I say, you know, exalted even in the gaming community. Like, video game music, if you go on YouTube, actually... Video game music covers are some of the most viewed and most subscribed content there are. Mm-hmm. You have people even like it's to the point where you have a like a smooth McGroove, shout out to him, who is releasing albums of covers of video game music and it's getting millions and millions and millions of listens and streams and views. That is how huge music some video games is, and I will go on record, I guess this is record of some, Final Fantasy VIII was where it really, the door really got kicked down. So we're, okay, this is not just something on the side. This is a genre that could be commercially successful and socially successful. You know? And once again, with the Eyes on Me controversy, even to the big wigs who you would think wouldn't get it, and now they get it. They get it. It is promoted. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And Final Fantasy VIII to me was kind of the nucleus of all of that. Yeah, definitely so. And uh, again, guys, uh, we're definitely looking forward to doing more of these as time permits us accordingly. So uh, again, as mentioned, Twitter, you can just follow us. Uh, Once again, that handle is Sounds on Sticks. 
Uh, you can email us at soundtracksonthesticks.gmail.com if you have any requests, questions, whatever it may be. And uh, once again, thanks for listening to this pilot, and we'll hopefully be back with you here very soon. So for Jordan Young, I am Chris Damasano, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Night of the Living Geeks production. For more information and content, visit notlg.com.